Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Noor O'Day. Noor is a journalist, political analyst, and public diplomacy consultant. From 2006 to 2011, she was the Al Jazeera English Network's senior correspondent for the West Bank. She's speaking to me from Ramallah. Our conversation begins with a look at the impact the most extreme government in Israel's history is already having on Palestinians. Noor, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. This coalition of extremists that Prime Minister Netanyahu has cobbled together, how dangerous is it? And how much worse can the situation become for Palestinians? Well, I think this coalition is extremely dangerous, certainly dangerous uh, for Palestinian lives and for Palestinian rights, but uh, and, 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 and also for... Uh, you know, everyday Israelis who uh, want to believe that they have a normally functioning democracy that protects the rights of its uh, citizens, at least the Jewish citizens. And now even that is in danger. But on the other hand, I think this coalition, which is quite truthful of where Israeli politics uh, is, provides the world with a chance uh, to kind of sober up and uh, look at the situation with clear eyes and act the way they need to uh, for a change. Yes, I mean, if we look at some of the uh, personalities in in this uh, coalition, p- people like uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, uh, Smotrich, uh, th- these are very, very extreme, and one would describe them as fascistic characters. Absolutely, and um, I mean, Smotrich, uh, you know, doesn't even hide it. He says, I'm a fascist homophobe. Uh, you, and we have to take him for his word or or, or his many words, really. These two uh, characters have uh, spared no effort to announce and, 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 and reaffirm where they stand on, on their racist views, on the fact that they don't view uh, uh, all lives and all human beings as equal, on the fact that they regret that the Nakba, the dispossession and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians was not complete in 1948, and so on and so forth. In addition, of course, to their uh, homophobic views and, and and other extreme religious views that uh, uh, directly affect the civil rights of, of ordinary Israelis. Mm. And uh, one of the efforts of this new government involves pushing through a bill in the Knesset that would allow a vote to overrule Supreme Court decisions. It's caused big protests in Israel, but how concerned should Palestinians be if Netanyahu succeeds in that endeavor, which of course is designed to keep him out of prison, hmm. as far as I can read it. Well, look, I um, I think that uh, regrettably the Israeli court system has not acted as independently as it should when it comes to Palestinian rights. And so we haven't really seen many cases in which the Israeli Supreme Court stood up for Palestinian rights or spelled out Israeli obligations as an occupying power, despite a few rulings in the 90s that, you know, talked about torture and so on and so forth. But, you know, all of those things continue. All of those violations continue. I think that Israelis should be very concerned. And I think for Palestinians, it speaks to the overall culture of impunity that this Knesset wants to entrench in Israel, whereby the prime minister and his cohorts can get away with anything, uh, be it uh, corruption, 
or the decimation of the Palestinian national cause. Uh, really, he's being given a, a free reign, and that will apply to everybody. First and foremost, really, to Palestinians, because they're the most vulnerable group here. They're the ones without uh, recourse. They're the ones without any any protection, physical or otherwise. And so this this uh, this attempt to kind of undermine the judiciary, uh, despite all its shortcomings, is is of grave concern, uh, of course. It represents a politicization of the judiciary that clearly many Israelis are concerned about. But but what about Arab Israelis? Does it also have perhaps even a greater impact on them? Well, look, I, I would I would remind our um, listeners with what um, um, a prominent um, uh, human rights organization like Adala has been saying for many, many years, which is that the Israeli legal system is by design discriminatory against Palestinian Israelis. There are over 60 laws on the book that discriminate against um, Israeli citizens who are of Palestinian origin. These citizens were there before the state of Israel was created. They're not; uh, they didn't just uh, pop up in Israel. They are not. They didn't seek asylum. Uh, they didn't immigrate. Yet they're not treated as equal citizens. The so-called Basic Law and its amendments, the Israeli uh, nation-state law uh, that was adopted a few years ago clearly states, uh, basically, that uh, this country, this Israel, is the state of its Jewish citizens and that uh, self-determination was the exclusive right of Jewish citizens in Israel. And even though this, uh, this law was challenged in Israeli courts, the Israeli courts declined to address uh, this constitutional issue. So again, we go back to the structural problems in Israel that don't view Palestinian Israelis as equal citizens, um, that um, uh, ensure their subjugation, ensure that they don't have equal rights to own property, to acquire land, and so on and so forth. Add to that now all that is happening and the uh, the people in power, and you've got yourself a very explosive combination. Mm. Now, we were on a panel a couple of weeks ago, uh, Al Jazeera's Inside Story, and you spoke then about the UN General Assembly vote to ask the International Court of Justice for an opinion on the consequences of Israeli occupation. Mm -hmm. And you argued then that the path of legal accountability is just about the only way forward. For listeners who may not have uh, seen the program, why do you say that? Well, look, at this point, um, realistically speaking, we have to you know, lay out the facts. The fact is there is no political track between Palestinians and Israelis. We have an international community that is more comfortable managing the problem and putting on a band-aid here and there where a, a life-saving surgery is needed. And so they don't want to intervene. They don't really want to take action. And the only thing that is left for Palestinians um, when it comes to attempting to end the, this occupation is legal recourse uh, internationally. Going to the International Court of Justice, which is now an international decision prompted by, by a Palestinian request, is an important step because this is the highest uh, judicial body in the uh, international system. Its ruling will have real implications on the policies and practices of states, uh, whether they like it or not. And we can uh, take heed of, you know, the consequences of 
the advisory opinion of the ICJ on the Israeli wall, which was deemed illegal by the court in 2004. Uh, that same court said that the realization of the Palestinian people's right to self-determination and to ending the occupation was the responsibility of all states. Following that ruling, and even though the international uh, community f fell far short of what it needed to do in terms of concrete actions to combat the continued construction of the wall, no state could dare say that that wall was not problematic, that it was not unlawful. And so the position on that issue basically became set in stone. Now the ICJ will have to assess the legal status of Israeli presence in the occupied uh, Palestinian territory and to see what the responsibilities of states is towards that situation. And we have to remember that occupation is a legal uh, uh, state in international law, but that legal uh, situation is contingent upon it being temporary. And now after over half a century of occupation, uh, many legal scholars and independent uh, UN rapporteurs have made the case over years now uh, that the Israeli presence in the occupied territory can no longer be viewed in the framework of occupation as it is defined by international law. It is neither temporary nor adherent to uh, the obligations of occupying powers under international law. So this is serious, and that's why Israel is basically throwing a fit. It announced retaliatory measures against the Palestinians, including outlawing Palestinian construction in 60% in of the West Bank. Uh, they take this quite seriously because it is. Yes, that uh, response from the Israelis was very punitive, and that's caused another response from 90 countries who've issued a statement saying, hang on, you cannot employ reprisals over a decision taken by the UN General Assembly mm -hmm. to move things forward to the ICJ. That's just not on. Absolutely, absolutely, because basically what Israel is doing is telling the world, hey, I'm a state above the law, uh, none of your rules apply to me, I can uh, uh, retaliate against uh, the Palestinians under my control, under my absolute domination, for seeking recourse uh, that was set out in the international system uh, for peoples who are facing you know, problems and issues that require a legal uh, assessment. And so um, you, if you look at the number, uh, if you look at the countries who signed that statement, many of them did not vote in favor of the resolution. Uh, many of them abstained or were uncomfortable with it uh, for political reasons. But once it was adopted, these countries understand that undermining the UN General Assembly even further, undermining the standing of the International Court of Justice is extremely dangerous, not just for Palestinians and for their fate, but for the entire international order. Uh, you can't have a system that is, you know, undermined and shoved aside by one country simply because it can. That's just not conducive to, to maintaining uh, whatever system we have now at this point internationally. And that's why they signed on to the statement. And so far, the response from Israel has been uh, to call it uh, diplomatic terrorism. I, I think what is needed right now is for these countries to kind of follow up their concern 
with with actions to uh, uh, sign up to write amicus to um, to the court about the situation, which they know very well. Uh, I don't think that any country can honestly say that uh, they don't understand what the situation on the ground is. They don't understand the grave internet, you know, violations of international law that Israel is perpetrating. They don't know the uh, grave injustice that the Palestinians are enduring. Their choices so far have been very political and very cynical. Uh, but in turn, what this has resulted in is an international order where Israel feels a sense of entitlement uh, that it, you know, it is outraged when anybody even verbally holds it to account for those clearly spelled out violations of international law and of human rights. And that needs to change. Yeah, but you know, as long as the United States backs Israel, that sense of impunity remains very much in place. And it seems to me that mm-hmm. the, the U.S. will never alter its support for Israel, whatever Israel does. I mean, we can see the hypocrisy, the complicity, and we can appeal to America's better angels, but nor will they be listening? Well, look, I, I you know, I agree with you uh, at the political level, but I think it's extremely important to remind ourselves of, uh, you know, uh, the fact that the United States is a democracy. And if there is enough popular momentum, if opinion within the ranks of uh, the the supporters of both parties changes, sways uh, enough in the right direction, then the U.S. administration, whichever it is, save maybe for Trump, if God forbid his, he's elected again, uh, will have to listen. And I, I would point, uh, you know, I, I would remind the listeners to what happened when it comes to apartheid South Africa. The U.S. was basically, uh, along with Israel and the U.K., the last countries to uh, support the dismantlement of apartheid in South Africa. They were the last ones to stop considering Nelson Mandela a terrorist. Uh, But they did in the end because they had no other choice, because there was enough international momentum at the grassroots level to, uh, you know, boycott and to uh, hold apartheid to, uh, to account that countries uh, did not feel that it was politically feasible to continue resisting that international consensus. And I believe that the Palestinian issue is going in that direction. Uh, it might take a lot longer but uh, and a lot more Palestinian blood and tears, but I do believe that this is where we're heading. And, and, and public opinion polls across the world uh, would, would show us that, would give us those indications as well. Mm. Yeah, and, and and in the Arab world, and we saw this in Doha at the World Cup, the cause of Palestine still enjoys huge support, but the leadership of authoritarian Arab regimes is bending over backwards, it seems to me, to show their support for Israel, that we have the Abraham Accords. Is oh. that going to be more difficult for this uh, authoritarian band of leaders, given the extremist regime that's now in place in, in Israel? I, I believe so, and I, I think we saw the first indication when uh, the UAE basically withdrew its invitation to Netanyahu after Ben Gvir so- stormed the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Look, Palestine will remain a central issue for Arab peoples, uh, no matter what their governments do. 
That was true when Egypt signed on the Camp David Accords and, and, and until this day normalizing with uh, Israel is, is basically non-existent at the popular level in Egypt, which was the first Arab country to sign a peace deal uh, with, with Israel. And the other Arab regimes that have now <laughs> signed agreements that ended no wars uh, with Israel, uh, like the UAE and Bahrain, understand that they can get away with, you know, having those agreements that they can, you know, uh, 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 buy espionage uh, software from uh, Israel and, and do other things. But really, at the grassroots level, they understand uh, where their people's uh, hearts are. And whenever they're given a chance, Arabs across the uh, Middle East make it very clear that Palestine for them is central. This is not a foreign issue for them. This is part of who they are. And, and supporting Palestine and the Palestinian cause is not something they're willing to uh, stop or undermine or give up uh, for the sake of the interests of their uh, rulers. Mm-hmm. History shows that it was Britain who played a major role in framing the conflict and then walked away from it. The current conservative government is well behind Labour in the polls, uh, the opposition party. Last time I looked, the lead was 20%. Do you have any hope that a Labour government would acknowledge Britain's sins and work towards a, a fair deal for Palestine and the Palestinians? Uh, you know, I, I don't like to look into any crystal balls, but I, I, I think that Britain at many levels is where it needs to be in terms of recognizing that very big sin towards the Palestinian people. The Labour Party, uh, on the other hand, went through its own witch hunt against pro-justice and pro-Palestine members. And, and I think it's very important for them to take a hard look uh, in the mirror at where they stand and how uh, hypocritical they sound uh, when they go after pro-Palestine uh, voices within the uh, Labour Party uh, by attaching to them uh, the false accusation of anti-Semitism simply because they support Palestinian freedom. So I think there's a lot of housekeeping to do in the Labour Party, but certainly if and when the Labour Party is voted into power, I think um, the positions of the uh, British government would at least not be as troubling as they are now. Yeah, and that uh, that label of anti-Semitism, which is attached to anybody really who criticizes the Israeli government for actions against Palestine, it's, it's still a very powerful weapon, isn't it? Of course, and, and, and that's exactly why it was devised, because this is the you know the the nuclear weapon of all weapons uh, when it comes to uh, smearing somebody's good name or assassinating their character. But I'm I'm very optimistic about the fact that a lot of experts and scholars on the issue of anti-Semitism have spoken out against the weaponization and the trivialization, really, of uh, anti-Semitism because it's being used as a silencing tool against. Uh, uh, those critical of Israeli policies, the you know equating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is very dangerous. It undermines the need to combat real anti-Semitism, which is rife, you know, especially in Europe. After all, this is mainly really a European problem, um, or a Western problem, if you will, and so. 
there's a growing consensus among scholars, Jewish scholars and, and scholars on anti-Semitism, Jewish American organizations and other organizations across Europe to kind of confront and call out the cynical use of the accusation of anti-Semitism to silence uh, a criticism of Israel. I hope that those voices increase, that they are not intimidated by the campaigns against uh, prominent people. Just look at, you know, what happened to the former uh, director, uh, executive director of Human Rights Watch. Look at what happened to the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on the situation in the occupied territory. Uh, the fact that, you know, even some leading um, Jewish experts who have been called anti-Semitic, it is absolutely nuts that, you know, anybody, regardless of their history, regardless of their integrity and their standing, uh, can be smeared that way just to protect the continued abuse of international law and, and Palestinian human rights, just to continue to provide cover for a rogue state that wants to stay above the law and above accountability. No other country no other government gets that kind of exceptional treatment. And it's time to call out that hypocrisy. And, and I'm glad that that is already happening. I want to ask you, Noor, about the two-state solution. Benjamin Netanyahu has worked diligently for years to kill it off. Is oh. it finally dead? And if so, is there another way forward that would bring justice to Palestine? You know, I haven't... Um, unconventional view on this. First of all, the two-state formula is the international formula, uh, not the Palestinian formula for justice. What it does is it provides minimum, the the, the minimum justice required for Palestinians. It, it falls far short of the uh, partition plan that the UN adopted to carve out Palestine and, and create two states where pal where historic Palestine was. But legally and politically speaking, the state of Palestine over the occupied territory, including East Jerusalem, is recognized by over 140 states. It is a legal and political fact that is undeniable. And because of that fact that exists, regardless of, you know, Israeli and American objection at this point, Palestine is at the International Criminal Court and Palestine has a special status at the United Nations, and it has full status at UNESCO and other uh, UN bodies and international organizations and is able to defend Palestinian rights against all of these prolific violations. So I don't think that it is up to Israel or in the hands of Israel to make any solution unviable. Certainly, it is very clear that Netanyahu wants to complete the colonization of historic Palestine. He seeks greater Israel in, in all that that entails, including the, you know, the dispossession uh, or further dispossession of Palestinians. But politically speaking, I don't think that he can uh, or anybody can dismantle the political reality of Palestinian statehood. What we need now is to realize sovereignty and independence by ending Israel's illegal presence in the occupied uh, West Bank, including Jerusalem and Gaza. And that, in my opinion, does not need Israeli acceptance or engagement. 
That is an international issue because the question of Palestine is an international issue. It was born in the halls of the United Nations out of a very unjust resolution that was never repeated in any similar fashion. And so it is in the hands of the international community to uh, carry out their obligations and ensure that there is enough accountability for this illegal situation to cease to exist. Israel must face a situation where it is far more costly for it to continue colonizing, dispossessing, and brutalizing the Palestinians uh, than it is to maintain the status quo, which is right now extremely profitable, unfortunately. Changing that balance is key, uh, and with it would come Palestinian sovereignty over an already recognized state. It's a very, uh, it's it, it's a long, long road, as as you as you've said on other yeah. occasions, and and I look at the situation now where Ben Gavir Smotrich uh, really are rather like you know they're the the fox in the henhouse. They're grabbing as much as they can while they can. I mean, we look at the Palestinians who've been killed in in seventeen days of this year. Fifteen Palestinians killed by the IDF. Yeah, uh, we can expect more land grabs. Uh, I'm thinking too of Netanyahu years and years ago when he was asked what was his uh, view of the West Bank. He said Swiss cheese. Hmm. You know, the uh, Palestinian communities will be completely surrounded by uh, by Israel. Um, how do you how do you uh, keep going forward, Noor? I mean, it's the question I've asked others, but I'll ask you too. What is it that 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 keeps the cause and the fight moving forward, because it seems like the obstacles are so enormous and so huge. Yeah, they are. But I think um, two things help. Uh, one is that we as a people are, um, as Mahmoud Darwish uh, says, uh, we are hopelessly hopeful. We invent hope where we can't find it, because that is the only choice we have uh, to keep moving forward. Uh, and we rely in that, in our conviction, that we are seeking justice, that we are not trans- transgressing against anybody in asking to be free, <laughs> to exercise our free will like all peoples in the world, to be ruled by our own uh, and to be uh, uh, an equal member of the uh, world community. Another thing I think that gives me hope is this way um, in the international dynamics at the grassroots level. Uh, for too long, this uh, political track has been rigged, if you will, and it was designed to move forward only so far as Israel allows. Israel was given a veto power uh, by Western powers, specifically or or more pointedly the U.S. and also the U.K. and now Germany, uh, that Israel had veto power over what can and cannot happen. Uh, it had veto power over Palestinian statehood, which isn't, you know, applies to no other case in the world. It had veto power over Palestinian rights, over Palestinian movement, over Palestinian access to health and education and, and opportunity. And in a way, I think what is happening right now is that paradigm is shifting and there is enough momentum gathering uh, first and foremost, among Palestinians to say, well, hold on a minute. You know, Israel does not have that veto power. It does not have the right to have that veto power. And it will not be the one to decide 
what Palestinian, what rights, what basic human rights the Palestinians can and cannot enjoy. This is a a power that was given and granted to no other colonial power in history. And quite frankly, we have to remember that no colonizer left their colonies uh, because suddenly they woke up and had a change of heart. Colonizers and, and or decolonization happened because it became too costly. And that's the path we're on to make this Israeli colonization costly. And I think it's the only path. Uh, will that eventually result in, at one point or another, sitting on a table and having a political agreement? Most likely, yes. But until that happens, I think it's our collective responsibility, Palestinians and and peoples around the world, to make sure that maintaining this injustice is very costly for Israel and for Israelis. That Israeli settlers are not welcomed with open arms in capitals around the world because they are violating international law. Uh, that Israeli goods made out of stolen material, uh, unstolen Palestinian land, is not bought, is not received on shelves, and so on and so forth. And that's where the world is headed, whether the U.S. likes it or not. And um, it will play catch up the way it did with apartheid, but that's okay. Noah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the journalist and political analyst, Noor O'Day. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Noor, Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.